Humans, friends, welcome or welcome back to Mind Medicine. I'm Tommy Moore, host of this podcast, and it's my job to inspect and dissect some of the leading psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, and leaders in the space of psychedelic assisted therapies from all over the world to shine a light on breakthrough therapies for mental illness. Awareness, education, and better therapeutic solutions are urgently required if we are to have any chance of alleviating the suffering of individuals and the burden of mental health on society. Mind Medicine Australia is a registered charity committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness within Australia through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. Mind Medicine Australia is providing educational material and events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and is now developing an Asia-Pacific Centre for Emerging Mental Health Therapies, as well as supporting clinical research. At Mind Medicine Australia, we believe that everyone should have access to the safest and most effective care. We're a small organisation doing big things, and we need your support. Alright, let's do this. Rick Doblin is an absolute force of nature. It's crazy. It was probably only 12 months ago that I was listening to Rick Doblin on the Tim Ferriss show. Um, He's also featured on Joe Rogan Experience. And so for me to be able to chat to him is a real honor. He's the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS. He received his doctorate in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where he wrote his dissertation on the regulation of medical uses of psychedelics and marijuana. He started MAPS almost 35 years ago. And I mean, I have entered the field of psychedelics really only in the last six or 12 months. To be able to chat to him, to really get a grasp of the history and the backlash and the turbulence that he and MAPS and other non-profit and for-profit organizations have been through in the past few decades is really insightful and inspiring because it's really now that progress is really starting to capture public awareness, not only in a clinical setting, but also in science and anthropology and philanthropy. It's really expanding the awareness of the therapeutic use of psychedelic drugs, but also the study of consciousness. Rick and I chat about MAPS's mission, which is primarily focused on MDMA, but also cannabis and and other classical psychedelics. We speak about MDMA stigma, some of the backlash that, that he and MAPS, as well as other organizations, have had to deal with over the past many, many decades. We dispelled some of the common myths and rumors surrounding MDMA, like its toxicity or neurotoxicity. We speak about fear extinction and memory reconsolidation and the new neural connections in in pro-social parts of the brain, courtesy of oxytocin. We also chat about how memories are formed, which is a really important aspect of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is what MDMA therapy has received Breakthrough Therapy Designation 4, and we touch on what exactly that is. We also chat about the drug scheduling system, how it makes it very, very difficult for Schedule 1 substances to get out of Schedule 1 substances, in that it needs private research and funding. And we close out the conversation in an open discussion about what a drug reform looks like in terms of a licensed legalization system. So I'm going to leave it at that. So please enjoy my conversation with Rick Doblin. Rick, firstly, I honestly cannot thank you enough for all the incredible work you and MAPS have done to bring light to psychedelics, battling and maneuvering through immense turbulence that is still here today. But it feels like there has been momentous progress in psychedelic medicine, particularly in the last few years. People tuning into this episode are probably already very familiar with the work that you have done and continue to do. But perhaps let's start with how you describe what you do. (laughs) Well, um, I'm the chief apologist at MAPS. (laughs) So we've got about um, 100 people now. Around two-thirds of them are in the Public Benefit Corporation, which is the 
pharmaceutical development arm. They're the ones that are doing the research and will actually then market MDMA post-approval. And then there's uh, 30 or so that are in MAPS, the nonprofit. And we do the public education. We do the Zendo psychedelic harm reduction. We do the fundraising. We do the lobbying, the, the advocacy, the operations, a lot of the um, budgeting and financing. And the nonprofit is the 100% owner of the for-profit public benefit corporation. So that's our virtuous circle that once uh, people donate to MAPS, get tax deductions, MAPS invests in the benefit corp, and then if the benefit corp succeeds and we get approval for marketing MDMA for PTSD or eventually other things too, that's the organization that will sell uh, the MDMA and whatever profits are made will then go back for the mission of MAPS. And so far, we've raised over $100 million in the history wow. of MAPS. Um, and all of it is from donors. So we have no investors at this point. It's all public benefit. And we've been at a moment where uh, Mind Medicine is one of the publicly traded companies. It's got a market cap of in the range of a billion dollars. Um, Compass Pathways is in the range of $2 billion also. And other companies are out there as well. And so what we can say is that for $100 million over 34 years, we have created an enormous amount of public value. And what I do is I work on um, regulatory affairs, on new partnerships, on uh, public education like what we're doing right now, and chief apologizing for things that people get <laughs> pissed off that we do. Um, and then some staff work, but I have a deputy director, Chris Lotlicker, who started Students for a Sensible Drug Policy. He's helping a lot now with um, management of all the staff. So, but basically, to even boil it down even further, I basically just sit at this in my office in my attic here in Boston, and I'm on the phone or email or Zoom almost all the time. And uh, and I'm just sitting here by myself. I have no staff here whatsoever because I, I felt like the um, critical thing for me to figure out is after I've done what one task what's the most important next thing for me to do and I have so many different things to choose from I'm so far behind on emails and so I need the kind of peace and quiet to just settle in for a moment and think ah oh, that's what I should do or this is what I should do so I'm here without any staff um, I guess most of us are like that now that we're working from home yeah, that's true but uh, we, we sort of have been an early adopter of um, working at home as well. So that, that's basically what I do. And I, I one of my favorite things is to um, get high from marijuana and review <laughs> the um, documents before they go into the FDA and edit them. Sounds like you are certainly living the dream at home there. <laughs> Actually, one of the yes, most yes, impressing yes. things that you've been able to do with MAPS is just pure relentlessness. You have such yeah. a clear vision and understanding of what needs to be done in order to heal what seems to be millions and millions of people. I mean, yeah. in regards to my personal journey into the investigation of psychedelics, I've been blown away by the support and openness that people are bringing to this field. But my research and understanding is very much in its infancy. And I've come into this when there's already been huge progress already that you and your team have made. And that's not to say there hasn't been backlash. There certainly has been. But you have been at this for decades. <laughs> now, jump in yeah. and correct me as you please. But I recall you had a hearing with the DEA in 1985 in regards to MDMA and in, in regards to its drug classification. Let's go over some MDMA history. It was first synthesized over a century ago, but then was largely forgotten. It's my understanding that MDMA was initially used as a therapeutic substance, but can you go over what has happened with MDMA up to this point? It's probably a big question, but, but let's start with that. Okay, all right. So MDMA was invented in 1912 by Merck, pharmaceutical company, and they had no interest in MDMA. They were trying to um, get to a drug that there was a certain kind of a um, patented synthetic process, and they tried to find a different way, and everything that they synthesized along the way, they patented, and MDMA was one of those things. So they weren't looking for 
developing MDMA. There's a lot of uh, rumors about how MDMA was used for um, appetite suppression or uh, stuff, but it was it was never used at all. So it was invented in 1912 by Merck. In 1927 is when they did some animal studies and found it to be of no interest whatsoever. They they um, you know the animals didn't say, "Oh, I love my fellow animal." They, they just <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, then the next we hear of it is 1953. The U.S. Army Chemical Warfare Service was looking for mind control drugs, drugs for interrogation, drugs for warfare, what they called non-lethal incapacitants. And that was, again, a toxicity studies in eight drugs. And this is a good way to understand MDMA, is that these eight drugs that they looked at, on one hand was methamphetamine, and on the other hand was mescaline. And MDMA is more or less in the middle. So mescaline is the only psychedelic that's a phenethylamine, like MDMA is. So MDMA is um, like a methamphetamine, so it's 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine. So it's not the methamphetamine molecule, it's, it's modified from that, but it has the alerting properties of methamphetamine, but it doesn't make you jittery. It doesn't make you want to um, clean your room 10 times or something. Um, if it did, I might have a neater office. <laughs> Um, but it's got the alerting properties but you can sit still and it has the sort of psychedelic emergence into awareness uh, that mescaline does without the ego dissolution so it's it's a unique thing in and of itself and again we don't have any evidence that uh, the army gave it to humans and that was classified until 1973 so in the 60s, there was a drug called MDA, methylene dioxyamphetamine, that's kind of like an LSD-MDMA combination. And it was very popular during that time. And in 1970, the Controlled Substances Act came in and the backlash against the 60s and all these drugs got criminalized. And Sasha Shulgin, who had his first, he was a chemist for Dow, had invented, I think, a biodegradable and insecticide and that was a very big seller and it, it was so appreciated that Dow gave him his own lab to figure out what else he wanted to do. Um, as it turned out, he got more and more interested in psychedelics. His first experience was with mescaline and one of the things he says about it is so beautiful. He said that he wasn't, he realized that he wasn't um, having a um, mescaline experience, he was having a human experience that mescaline helped him to access and that it felt genuine and from his inside. And so he and other chemists started looking for other new compounds once the Controlled Substances Act came in in 1970 and criminalized things. At the time, the government had to make each individual molecule illegal. So you tinker with it and now you've got a legal drug. And so Sasha really helped rediscover MDMA. And there's a lot of stories about the origin of it, but we kind of think of Sasha as the godfather. And then what happened was that a fellow named Leo Zeff, who was a clinical psych PhD, he was the leader of the underground psychedelic therapy movement. And he was about to retire. And the way Sasha and Ann, his wife Shulgin, worked on this is that they would develop new drugs, they would take them themselves, they had a group of 12 people that they would give them to, to try out. And they felt that everybody's unique, but if you get opinions from 12 people, that more or less you can get a good idea of what the drug is capable of doing. And they decided, this group of 12, that MDMA had incredible therapeutic potential. And they gave it to Leo Zeff, and he decided that he would not retire, um, that he would try to train psychiatrists and psychotherapists and others with MDMA, and he would use it in his practice. So MDMA was a therapy drug from the middle 70s to the early 80s. Around half a million doses were used in these therapy settings. But what happened was that some of the people that used it in these therapy settings thought, aha, I can make a lot of money, this is a great drug, more people should have it. And so it became ecstasy and it became sold in public settings. That's what attracted the attention of the DEA. 
So from 1972, when I was um, 18 years old, is when I decided to focus my life on psychedelics. And I had read Stan Groff, um, Realms of the Human Unconscious, that book. And that's what persuaded me to do it. And I wrote to Stan. I did a workshop with him in the summer of 72. And I realized, though, that I was not balanced. I, I had taken a lot of psychedelics. I didn't understand the importance of integration. And so it took me basically 10 years to do this integration work, building houses, getting involved in the physical world, trying to put out what my ideas were into the physical world. And so in 1982, I started back again at college. I dropped out in the middle of my freshman year. So I decided to go back to study with Stan to develop a curriculum to become a psychedelic therapist. And it was in September of 1982 at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, during this workshop, a month-long workshop there called The Mystical Quest. That's where I learned about MDMA. And when I learned about MDMA, it was the code name was Adam as the underground psychedelic um, therapeutic drug underground only because even though it was illegal even though it was legal the word the worry was that if it were to become widely known then the DEA would criminalize it because this was during Nancy Reagan escalation of the drug war just say no so I learned about MDMA in 82 and um, when I tried it with my girlfriend I was just absolutely shocked at how profound it was and I realized now I learned about LSD and the value of it is after the backlash but I felt like now I'm learning about MDMA before the backlash and because it was both Adam and ecstasy it was clear that there would be a backlash so actually then in the summer of 84 or not the summer but early of 84 I started another nonprofit with uh, Debbie Harlow who's the woman that gave me the MDMA in 82 and a woman named Elise Hagar who was a therapist and, and very much involved with the psychedelic community and so we started this organization to prepare to gather evidence and to get allies once the DEA cracked down on MDMA which we knew would happen eventually and so we felt that while it was still legal we could introduce it to a whole range of people so summer of 84 is when the DEA moved to criminalize MDMA and there was a 30-day public comment period and I went to DC and asked for these hearings and so we managed to get them. We'd already done a secret safety study with MDMA, just uh, about 30 people looking at um, blood pressure, heartbeat, various other measures of uh, function. And we had that ready to go. The hearing took place starting in 85. So that's really what, what you, and then um, we won the hearing. The judge said MDMA should be illegal for recreational use but it should be legal for therapeutic use. And the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, rejected the recommendation, wanted to criminalize it completely. Um, we sued them in the appeals courts. We won twice. And DEA finally figured out how to justify their rejecting of the recommendation to satisfy the appeals courts. And so in 86 is when I started MAPS. And that's where I realized the only way to bring it back was uh, through medicine, through science, through the FDA. Perfect. Yeah, just coming back, you mentioned um, increased blood pressure. And there seems to be a lot of rumors surrounding the toxicity of MDMA. I hear things like neuronal destruction, increased risk of Parkinson's, serotonin depletion, neurotoxicity. But on the other hand, you've also got the likes of Timothy Leary, who was probably perhaps over-exaggerating the benefits. Can you speak to the actual toxicity of this drug, and is it really what yeah. we're led to believe? Well, uh, no, it's not at all what you've been led to believe. But but let's just start with what you've just said about Parkinson's, that MDMA causes Parkinson's, or could cause Parkinson's. Okay, well, the rumor, to, to give you just a brief background on that, is um, Parkinson's has to do with dopamine. And there's not enough dopamine. That's why L-Dopa is one of the drugs that you give to people with Parkinson's. What happened was starting in the 1985, um, when the DEA was moving to criminalize MDMA and we slowed them down with this lawsuit, um, then we became aware that they were trying to criminalize it internationally through the WHO, the World Health Organization. So I went to Geneva to lobby the people at the WHO 
and to bring them information about therapeutic use. And there was um, a person there that, from the U.S. Uh, that was the um, scientific advisor of um, this committee that was going to rule on MDMA. And he was saying to me that he had a graduate student at the University of Chicago, George Riccardi, that was studying MDA and the neurotoxicity of that. And that uh, he felt that MDMA could be hurting serotonin. And so we started um, trying to understand that. And I started working with George Riccardi about that. And there was just a massive exaggeration of MDMA and the effect on um, serotonin. And it turned out to be this kind of um, Chuck Schuster, uh, uh, Charles Schuster was the um, person that I met in Geneva. Um, he later became the um, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, but there was this massive exaggeration of the risks of MDMA for serotonin. And it got to be where one dose, permanent brain damage, major functional consequences, you know, totally not true. Um, and by the middle of, uh, or after about, let's say around 15 years or so, so around by 2000, the, the serotonin neurotoxicity story was being challenged by a lot of different people uh, and scientists all over the place. And that it just didn't seem right that, that you could be on the one hand being told that one dose, permanent brain damage, major functional consequences, but you don't see it. And it, so it got really challenged. So then NIDA funded George Riccardi to, and his wife, Una McCann, to do a project in primates. Um, so I'm, t I'm missing a lot of stuff, but I'll just say that in the primates, they claimed that they showed suddenly, even though a lot of research before had focused only on serotonin and we'd shown that dopamine wasn't hurt. Now they claimed that dopamine was hurt and that, that it could cause Parkinson's. And so this was published in Science, which is considered to be one of the premier scientific journals in the world. By that point, um, science got way ahead of itself. They published this thing. A bunch of the primates died in the study. We knew that MDMA didn't, we'd done previous work with primates. The MDMA didn't kill the primates and it just didn't make sense. There'd been other research before that didn't show effects on um, dopamine. We'd had a spinal tap study. Me and 30 other people volunteered for spinal taps for looking at ser uh, neurotransmitter metabolites in our spinal fluid. Uh, dopamine was fine. They, they didn't find anything. In any case, we kept challenging them, the researchers, about their study. Eventually, what it came out was that they made a terrible mistake and that they had they couldn't replicate their results when we were challenging them. They spent a year and they did all sorts of things to try to get dopamine neuro, dopaminergic neurotoxicity, which they upped the dose, they upped the temperature of the animals, they upped the crowding of the animals. They couldn't replicate their results. And then finally, they looked at the autopsies at the brain cells of one of the primates that had died. And what they discovered is that they had mixed up the bottles of methamphetamine and MDMA. And they had been giving these primates methamphetamine thinking it was MDMA. So a full dose of MDMA right now is around 125 milligrams. Full dose of methamphetamine is way, way less, you know, a tenth of it. So they were giving massive amounts of MDMA thinking that it was, um, I mean, massive amounts of methamphetamine thinking it was MDMA. And they had to retract their studies. It was one of the biggest scandals in science in decades. And so they proved that MDMA doesn't hurt dopamine and has no connection to Parkinson's. But the retraction doesn't get as much uh, attention as their initial wild claims. So that's just one of the things that you said. MDMA has no effect on Parkinson's. It has, we just did, uh, we had to replicate some studies for the FDA in um, dogs and rats about um, you know, MDMA neurotoxicity. And once again, what we're showing is that we're below what's called the no effect level. So N-O-E-L, Noel, no effect level, is you find out 
you know, at what play, at what dose do you give, uh, do you get certain harmful effects? So the amounts that we give in therapy are below the no effect level for hurting serotonin. And we only give MDMA a few times. And the effects of serotonin, supposedly MDMA causes serotonergic damage and then it, that impacts um, neurocognitive function, executive function, memory, things like that. Um, and so there have been a series of studies that have tried to claim that MDMA hurts uh, various neurocognitive functions. Um, we did a study funded by NIDA, done at Harvard, was we found this group of people that had only done MDMA because all the other studies were people that had done MDMA, they'd done LSD, they'd done this, they'd done that. They'd, turns out there was a group of Mormons. So in the United States, and you got Mormons in Australia, I think, where you know they don't do drugs, they, except for certain kinds of Mormon tea, which has um, certain kinds of uh, caffeine-like things in it. Or but but they they don't smoke marijuana. They don't drink out. Al- they don't drink alcohol. They don't smoke cigarettes. They don't use marijuana. But there was a bunch of them. We called them the fallen Mormons. Had done a lot of MDMA and no other drugs. And anyway, NIDA put in 1.8 million to study this group, and the results were co- very reassuring. So. I think from a neurotoxic perspective, we really don't need to worry about that when it comes time to the therapeutic use of MDMA. And I'll just share that I've used MDMA about 120 times in my life. Now it's only about once a year or so, but I don't feel harmed in the slightest. And so think now at certain doses, you know, you can, you can overdo it, and there, there can be, we, we, I've seen people that have gotten dependent on MDMA that have used it frequently. Uh, they get burned out on it. They become emotionally flat. It's the opposite of what um, you're seeking for, which is emotionally more open and fluid. And they need to give it up. And after a while, they sort of, a couple months, they come back to feeling normal. But the one thing that's unique about MDMA as compared to LSD, psilocybin, any of the other classic psychedelics or marijuana, is that if you get a tolerance to these other drugs, what you do is you just use higher amounts to get the feeling. But with MDMA, um, if you do get sort of a tolerance to it, you take higher amounts, you just get the speedy parts. You don't get the open-hearted parts. But what most people do report who've used MDMA a fair amount is that over time, it just doesn't do what it used to do before. It's not as vivid, it's not as sharp, it's not as uh, profound, it, but it's still valuable, but there's something that's changed. And so that's not the case with LSD. If you do, haven't done LSD for a bunch of time and you take LSD, you're going to have an LSD trip, just like your first trips. I mean, the content will be different. But there is this effect over time that people often report that MDMA no longer does as much as it did after they've taken it a bunch of times, and it's different for every person. So that's the best evidence that there is, that there are brain changes, but it doesn't make it so that you suddenly aren't loving or aren't happy, or it doesn't have any of these other, con- it seems very narrow to just reducing your um, benefits, you could say, of MDMA. And from a therapeutic perspective, um, it's, it's a beneficial thing because it reduces the abuse liability of the drug. So I'd say then you don't have to worry about Parkinson's. People have thought about MDMA draining spinal fluid. It doesn't drain spinal fluid. Um, It really, what I think people have to be aware of is in recreational contexts, pure MDMA, you can take it at a party, you dance all night. It is possible for people to overheat and get hyperthermia and die. People have died from that. You also, sometimes people have heard for harm reduction device, drink water, you know, uh, sometimes people drink so much water when they're on MDMA that they die from drinking too much water. That's called hyponatremia. So there are risks. And, but I would say that I'd say the, the um, most important risk is emotional. And we have people that have taken MDMA at raves or at festivals and they just want to have a good time and difficult stuff comes up and they're thinking oh my god this is now going to be a bad trip and they try to block the feelings and block the memories and when you do that you can feel worse off for months or or years even after that when you don't deal with the content that emerges i'd say that's the biggest risk 
Yeah, perfect. I just wanted to to speak to some of the risks and kind of debunk some of the conventional beliefs before we get into the extremely positive results that MDMA is showing. I actually just want to speak to some of those positive benefits, um, one being oxytocin and ah, the formation yes. of new neural connections in the social parts of the brain. I guess the fear extension and memory reconsolidation. Can you yeah. comment on how we form memories and why this is so important in understanding PTSD? Yeah, so um, fear extinction and memory reconsolidation is a really good uh, set of concepts to, to understand um, how it works. Um, but just to start with oxytocin, so um, MDMA um, stimulates oxytocin. So in addition to serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, um, there's hormonal release. And oxytocin is the um, hormone of nursing mothers. It's um, the hormone of love and connection. And what a neuroscientist, Gould Dolan at Johns Hopkins has shown, and she's published this in Nature, that, and this is a study in mice, that MDMA um, stimulates uh, the release of oxytocin, which then promotes new neural connections so that you have um, new synaptic connections in prosocial areas of the brain. And that's how you can account for long-term permanent changes that can be after just one experience or two or three experiences that you're actually rewiring your brain. Now, what fear extinction and memory reconsolidation is, is that Fear extinction means that something um, makes you fearful and over time you can get over it. And, and this is animal models where there'll be like a cage with some uh, mice or rats in it and there's certain parts of the bottom of the cage would be electrified. You get a mild electrical shock and then when the rat or mice goes on that and then they get the shock, then they don't go back to that spot for a certain period of time. You know, and so you can give them um, MDMA and then they will test out that spot sooner than otherwise. So you get ideas, you get traumatized, you get these patterns of avoidance, and then you never recheck and the pattern of avoidance is what sort of um, stays with you. So the same is for memories. You know, you have a memory that is fearful uh, from trauma. So the fear extinction is that you are able to work with the memory to process the trauma, the feelings, things like that. And what happens then is that the next time you um, remember it, uh, since you've sort of processed it and you've been able to put it in the past, it's not always about to happen, that's called fear extinction. The memory reconsolidation part of this is that it used to be thought that when we have a memory, it's like you go to a book on your bookshelf, you pull down the book, you read the book, and you stick it back. What actually happens with memory is that you pull the book off the shelf, you remember it, but then you have to reprint the book before you can store it again. So that's memory reconsolidation, and there's different kinds of memory. So with um, trauma, there's what's called episodic memory, which is the memory of the episode. So the, the memory reconsolidation part is that you sort of reprint, reconsolidate the memory after you've remembered it. But under the influence of MDMA or other therapies, when you're able to process the feelings that are associated with it, you're not scared anymore, you don't realize, you, you don't keep thinking it's about to always be happening, it's happening now, it's in the past. So you the memory that you reconsolidate after therapy is you we find that people's memory for the episode the episodic memory is increased a lot of it was too fearful for people to remember so under the influence of MDMA they remember more of the trauma and then when you are able to put it in the past and you reconsolidate the memory you have sort of swapped out the emotions of fear and the emotion that it's about to happen now or it's right still happening you swapped it out with it's in the past and I've processed it. It's part of my story, but not the whole thing. It's moved from foreground to background. So then when you remember it again in this, after it's been reconsolidated, you've got the memory of the episode, but the emotions are different. And that's the healing from PTSD. 
Yeah, perfect. Just to, to paraphrase that, when we form memories, we I guess we have the physical memory of, of the events that took place, but then the emotional memory as well. And through MDMA, it's recalling that physical memory and then obviously the emotional baggage that comes with it, but then kind of replanting that memory with a different emotional response to it creating this safe container and accepting what has happened and just to continue with that what is it about creating that setting and that intention that transforms something that is conventionally thought of as just a feel-good drug at a party or music festival to something that heals emotionally wounds that people have well that feel-good part let's talk about that at the party so so what there is is this incredibly deep sense of self-acceptance. I think, you know, we're always running these uh, scripts in our mind of, you know, self-criticism or perfectionism or, you know, anxieties, and MDMA quiets that. So half doses of MDMA have been used in meditation um, and have deepened people's meditation practice. You just have an experience of deeper quiet, and then you can try to get to that on your own without out the drug. But what we've been able to um, sort of do in the therapy is that you're able to bring this sort of suppressed emotions of and, and so several of the people in our studies have said I don't know why they call this ecstasy because in a therapeutic setting you know the self-acceptance the self-love the the compassion the connection with others that what happens in a therapy setting sometimes though is People just spend hours shaking or hours crying or, or hours. It's like letting out the emotions that when you're traumatized, a lot of times you, you can't be thinking about your feelings. You have to be really thinking about self-preservation and you kind of suppress your emotions and you, you know, but, but then when you come back to the situation, you have a hard time because the emotions are so painful. So in a therapeutic setting, we allow for the full expression of the feelings and it's that full expression of the feelings that helps to um, move those energies of fear through the system. And then afterwards, it's like grieving, crying after somebody has died or crying after something sad has happened. You kind of process the feelings and then that's part of your past and then you can move on. So the essence of the therapeutic method is helping people to experience fully whatever is going on, even if it's in your body. So Bessel van der Kolk is a psychiatrist who's an expert in PTSD. He's the principal investigator of our Boston site, and he's written a book called The Body Keeps the Score about how trauma is scored, stored in the body a lot of times too. And, and people will get feelings in their body before they get the conscious awareness of what they're about. So. The therapy is just to encourage people to experience as fully as they can whatever is coming in physical sensations, in memories, and emotions, and to express it. And that's the essence of the therapy, and that helps with the fear extinction, the memory reconsolidation, um, and this sense of how it's working is um, an explanation in part for why this is such a popular recreational drug or non you know, in use in outside of therapeutic settings because the sort of sense of self-acceptance um, is rare for people. And then you're not as striving. One of the doctors that we work with, Torsten Passi in Germany, has written a paper comparing the MDMA experience to the post-orgasmic state. There's oxytocin in the post-orgasmic state so that you're not you're sort of satiated, you're not striving, you're peaceful, you're open. Um, I think that is a really good way to understand MDMA. And that's why in recreational settings, it's not as, um, I don't know how to put the, the, the right word for it. When, when you're in a recreational setting with alcohol, a lot of it is very um, aggressively sexually focused. Um, but with MDMA, it's more about connection rather than just that kind of uh, sexual conquest in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Just circling back to 1984, I think it's really important that, you know, we've, we've given context into what MDMA is doing and what some of the risks are and what the benefits are and why it's so effective. But 
1984, your first ever therapy session with MDMA, or possibly your mm-hmm. first ever yeah. therapy session with a patient. I'm speaking on yeah. your behalf, but I'm going to let you take yeah, it from yeah. me in a second. But I think it's so powerful to see the power of MDMA in anecdotal evidence. Can can you tell that story? Yeah, so I, I've told this in my TED Talk, so I'd encourage people to um, check out my TED Talk as well. Um, but it was 1984 that I had the first um, experience working as a therapist with somebody with PTSD. And this illustrates both the risks and the benefits. So a friend of mine, um, I had sold some MDMA to. Now this is uh, before it became illegal and um, I felt it was, uh, I loved it and I thought some of my friends would love it. So I was selling it to some of my friends. Um, And this friend uh, got some and he ended up doing what, doing it with a, a girlfriend that I did not know. I didn't know her at all. I'd never met her, never heard of her. And um, and then I went back, so that happened. So I, I go to Esalen and I do, this is now in 84, I do another month long workshop on the Spiritual Emergence Network. This is again with Stan and Christina Groff. It's about people who have these emergence, you could even call it midlife crisis or whatever, where it's it's like an opening something's either not working or they or everything's working and they have this kind of newer experiences they can't quite explain so it's it's emergence or emergency and how do you handle so it's basically how do you handle people having difficult trips or difficult circumstances and a lot of times they get pathologized and stuff and and they don't need to be so i i did this month-long workshop then i'm home for a couple days and my friend calls me up and he said he and his girlfriend did MDMA and during the MDMA experience that they had together, which they thought was going to be very loving and very wonderful, memories of her uh, past sexual abuse, she had been raped and almost killed. And they emerged back into her awareness under the influence of MDMA and she wasn't able to process it. You know, they didn't know what to do with it and she'd previously had experiences of being suicidal, attempting suicide, been in institutions before because this rape um, and physical violence had been so terrible for her. And so under the influence of MDMA with this friend of mine, um, this emergence of emotions came up and she actually self-hospitalized in order to prevent herself from hurting herself. And she was there in the hospital for five or six days and she got out and they'd given her the same old drugs that had never worked for her before and she was more hopeless than ever before and she was suicidal. So my friend said, would you be willing to work with her with MDMA? And on the one hand, I felt responsible because I had given the MDMA. I had just been through this training, but I felt like I'm not qualified. This is a real life person who's suicidal. I'm not a therapist. I'm just learning to be a therapist. I'm not qualified. But then I felt like she had no other options. You know, the, the best that Western medicine at the time could offer her had not helped. And so this shows again, MDMA can trigger destabilizing situations. So I think one of the most important decisions of my whole life in retrospect was realizing that I was responsible, I was trained, um, she had no other options and I said I would talk to her. And during our conversation, I said, if you promise not to commit suicide while we're working together, I will work with you. And she agreed. And as it turned out, um, we were able to, um, the first session was an MDMA session. The second was an MDMA LSD combination. And those two sessions really opened her up and helped her to process the trauma and really broke her free so that she no longer was suicidal now that was um, 36 years ago and after that initial um, therapy that we did what happened was she just kept getting better and better and better and then she decided that what she wanted to do was to become a therapist and she was an artist before and so she went to school she became a therapist and now she's working for MAVS as one of our lead therapists and as the trainer of other therapists. So the other part of this is that in 84 when we worked together and I kept seeing her get better and better and better over time, 
when all the stuff about neurotoxicity came out, one dose, brain damage, functional consequences, I just kept looking at her getting better and better and I thought that the, the reality is so different from the propaganda that eventually I think the reality has to um, break through all this propaganda and that that's where we're at now. Yeah, absolutely. And we are very, very close to that. Of course, it's yeah. still a Schedule 1 substance, but it's in Phase 3 trials at the moment. Um, okay. Just coming back to you her story and how she's getting how she got better and better over time why do people do better in the 12 month follow-ups compared to a two-month follow-up yeah yeah that's a great question so the thing is that when you have ptsd you you've got these emotions that are too powerful and and once you get into this chronic ptsd whenever these emotions come to the surface you have the sense they're too powerful i can't handle them you, you kind of suppress them or go away or you drink alcohol or any number of things but under the influence of MDMA in the therapy, what you learn is that there's a way to take these fearful emotions and accept them and experience them. And after you do that, um, you're, you're a little bit better. You're not as traumatized by those memories. So people learn a process and the most important part of our therapy is that the integration part we teach people and they learn themselves how to heal themselves when they feel anxious on their own they learn how to do deep breathing or they learn how to, to accept it and so people have learned a process through this three and a half month course of MDMA assisted psychotherapy that they can continue on their own afterwards they also have hope they know, they've had these moments of self-love, these moments of acceptance. And so they're able to, to continue this building their resilience, building their mental health on their own without the drug. And that's, in a way, that helps explain why it's nonprofit MAPS that is developing this instead of for-profit Merck or other companies because this is a drug that really people only need a couple times. Now, you can learn a lot. I, told, I mentioned I did it 120 times. You can keep learning and having good times and having wonderful moments with people. But, you know, to get over PTSD, you, it's not like a daily medication. We're, we're not controlling symptoms. We're getting to the root causes and trying to rewire your brain. And so I think that's where people learn a process and they can keep getting better on their own afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've been proposing to the FDA clinical trials that would entail the exemption of the use of a Schedule 1 drug. What does the scheduling mean and what are you hoping for in terms of the rescheduling for MDMA, but also for psilocybin and other psychedelics? Yeah, okay. So, and, and I'll also bring this into the Australian context for you as well. So, what the... Um, one of the most successful things, uh, one of the most successful exports of America has been our drug war. <laughs> so basically, you've got the scheduling system that we're talking about spread throughout the world. And MDMA is criminalized in every single country in the world. There's no country that MDMA is legal. There are some countries like Portugal where possession is decriminalized, but it's basically um, illegal everywhere. And so, the rescheduling is something that starts with a regulatory agency like the FDA or the European Medicines Agency saying, yes, this is a medicine, and now it has to be rescheduled so that it can be used as a medicine. And there's a series of schedules that there, there are different numbers in different countries. In the US, Schedule 1 is the worst. Those are drugs that have high potential for abuse, no accepted. Uh, medical use and no accepted safety under medical supervision. Um, schedule two is drugs have a high potential of abuse, but there is a medical use, like um, cocaine, for example, or certain of the opiates. Um, schedules three, four, and five are drugs that have an abuse potential, but it's not a high potential. It's a uh, moderate or medium potential or a low potential for abuse. Um, there's various um, rules and regulations about how they're controlled. So what we're going to 
suggest to the FDA is that it go in Schedule 3 or Schedule 4. And fortunately, once the FDA says, yes, it's a medicine, you've proven safety and efficacy, then the DEA must reschedule. It's just a question of what schedule they put it in. And so in Australia, one of the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Authority, um, has we've met with uh, their leadership and they're in, interested in um, seeing the results of our first phase three study, which we've just submitted uh, today to a journal for review. Hopefully we'll have it published by the end of January. And there are other ways, other short of approval for prescription use, there's approval for research, which is what we're doing in many, many countries of the world. But there's also approval for compassionate use, or it's called expanded access, where patients pay for it themselves. They can get it before the drug is approved, but they have to accept the risk and they have to pay for it themselves because the data is not used for approval. So sometime uh, first half of uh, 2021, we're gonna be going to the TGA with our phase three data and ask for some sorts of permission for expanded access in Australia and also for um, expanding research. And so when you do research, the drug can stay in Schedule 1. When you do this expanded access or compassionate use, it can still stay in the most restrictive schedule. It's only once it's approved as a prescription medicine does it get rescheduled. Okay. Now, yeah. when did you receive, or when, when did MAPS receive breakthrough therapy designation for MDMA and psilocybin, and, and what does that actually mean? Okay, now first off, let's just say that we are not doing psilocybin research. Um, other nonprofits like USONA, Hefter, are doing psilocybin research, and then there's Compass Pathways, which is the for-profit that's doing um, psilocybin research for depression. And there's more and more groups coming in to do psilocybin for different things. So we are not ourselves doing um, psilocybin research, but we're coordinating with those groups that are doing psilocybin research. and. In the future, the therapists that are trained to give MDMA or to give psilocybin, they don't want to be an MDMA therapist or a psilocybin therapist or a ketamine therapist. They want to be psychedelic therapists and they want to be cross-trained with all those different drugs. So the clinics of the future, you go to your psychedelic clinic and you will be um, able to get a customized treatment individualized uniquely to you. You know, like this is what you need first. Let's start with MDMA, then let's go to psilocybin, or, or you know, it, it'll vary with every person. So I think the um, way in which that that this will be, um, you know, distributed is going to be um, customized in that way. But breakthrough therapy is for the most important drugs that are under research, and it was in um, July 2017. So three years and uh, you know five months ago, uh, we got breakthrough therapy. And then about a year plus after that, um, FDA granted breakthrough therapy for psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression for Compass. And then about uh, six months or so after that, USONA got breakthrough therapy for psilocybin for major depressive disorder. Okay, brilliant. Now, I know you don't do the psilocybin research, but cannabis or marijuana, where, where does that sit in regards to therapy? What can cannabis help with? Well, we have gotten a um, $2.1 million grant from the state of Colorado to do research with cannabis for PTSD and veterans. Um, and we're very close to getting that um, paper published about that. So there's a lot of people that are using cannabis for PTSD. Um, and it can be effective in terms of reducing symptoms, helping people not have nightmares, sleep better, um, but it, it doesn't get to the core root of the problem. So people that tend to use marijuana for PTSD tend to use it on a daily basis for extended periods of time. And sometimes if you stop using marijuana, sometimes the problems will come back. But but it can be effective and there's you don't have to confront your traumas uh, you know the way i said sometimes people say i don't know why they call this ecstasy and and i think it's legitimate for people to gravitate to the kind of therapy that they want some people will want mdma some people will want 
uh, cannabis. Cannabis is good for an enormous number of different things. Physically, it's got an, a lot of different properties that it helps with pain. It helps with nausea. We know that CBD you know, helps with childhood epilepsy. Um, certain kinds of uh, cannabinoids help with certain kinds of cancers even. You know, smoking marijuana does not cause lung cancer because of, um, we think, the anti-tumor properties of cannabinoids. There, there's an enormous amount of in, uh, potential medical uses of cannabis that are still to be explored and they've not, the only ones that have been through the FDA are, let's see, THC for nausea control for cancer chemotherapy and also for appetite stimulation and nausea control in people uh, with uh, HIV, with AIDS on certain uh, medications, and also CBD for uh, childhood epilepsy. And then there's uh, Epidiolex, from, which is a THC-CBD combination that's been used for, it's not fully approved in the U.S., but, but it's been good for pain and other things. MAPS has just worked with um, a researcher, we've just filed a lawsuit against the uh, DEA, the head of the DEA and the Attorney General, um, suing them for sitting on over 30 applications for over four years from various people that want to grow marijuana domestically, that want a license in the United States. We have all this state marijuana legalization, state medical marijuana, um, but there's only one uh, DEA licensed producer of marijuana in the United States and since the FDA is federal we can't use any of the state legal marijuana we can only use federal legal marijuana and the federal legal marijuana is terrible quality and it can only be used for research not for prescription sales and therefore in phase three which is what we're in for MDMA you have to use the same exact drug that you want to market and since the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which has the supply of this marijuana grown at the University of Mississippi, um, they can only provide it for research, not for commercial sales. So that's why we've had, um, since 1968, so 52 years, we've had this uh, monopoly. And that's what's been used to block, really, development of research into the uses, uh, medical uses of marijuana. So that's all to say, um, I can't really answer your question about all the things that marijuana could be good for, but we are now preparing a $10 million grant application to the state of Michigan. When they legalized marijuana, friends of ours did it, uh, did the initiative, and they have they have to give, uh, they, they put a little paragraph in there that the state of Michigan has to put in $20 million a year for two years for research into cannabis in veterans. To, uh, on veterans' mental health and reducing veteran suicides, and the money can only go to nonprofits or academic researchers. So we hope to develop uh, cannabis for PTSD as well. Perfect. Just coming back to a, a drug reclassification, where do you personally think that cannabis, but also classical psychedelics, should should fit into that? Well, I'm really glad that you asked that question because what it gets me to say is that our these drugs should be legal. They should be completely legal. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be scheduled at all. So that there should be two um, tracks. Our, our goal is mass mental health. Um, you know, what we, need, we use, what we need are billions of people that are spiritualized, that have healed from their multi-generational trauma, and then maybe humanity has a chance of surviving. We're in the current process of destroying ourselves and destroying the environment and killing all sorts of animals, destroying the climate. So we need mass mental health. One route that MAPS is trying in, to further that goal is to do research uh, with psychedelics for medical uses. And what will happen if we succeed is then people will be able to go to clinics, as we discussed, and have their treatments paid for by insurance, either national health cares or private insurance, or, you know, sometimes, of course, it can be self-pay, but the goal is medicalize and insurance coverage and a lot of um, public education about that. And that will always be, and that's the first, that's the opening door. Medicalization changes people's attitudes, le leads to legalization. So we should also have a parallel track, which is based on this understanding that it's a fundamental human right to explore your consciousness. Prohibition as a concept is 
you know, not that old. I mean, we do have some religions that say don't use alcohol that have been around for a long time. We have other religions where alcohol is uh, a sacrament. So you can go either way. You, you make it a sacrament or you criminalize it. Um, what we're proposing is that somewhere in, in between is that it should be a licensed legalization system where like you have to get a driver's license to do uh, drive a car and if you have problems driving you can lose your license to drive the car. You have to go to uh, school as I had to uh, if you um, get too many speeding tickets <laughs> or stuff like that. <laughs> so, um, so I think that we should have a licensed legalization system. People should go to one of these clinics, have a, an experience under supervision that's basically free, paid for out of all the tax money, and then um, you get a license to do the drug. And if you do the drug and you misbehave, you um, get punished for your misbehavior, and then your license is taken away for a while while you get re-education. So the answer to your question is MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, even to go further, heroin, cocaine, none of these drugs does it help to reduce drug abuse to have them criminalized. If that's our goal, we should have them, we should have honest drug education, harm reduction methods throughout society, uh, drug checking to make sure everybody's got pure drugs and treatment on demand. And when you have that, you can have a system of um, licensed legalization where the benefits way, way outweigh the cost. And there will always be costs. Drugs have risks. No solution is going to end all risks. But prohibition is counterproductive, racist, leads to mass incarceration. It's about suppression of minorities or jobs, you know, for prison guards or police or private prison owners. Uh, you know, it's just so many warped incentives there. But all, all that is to say that as a medicine, you know, the scheduling systems make sense. It should be controlled in certain ways, but it should also have a parallel track of being um, available legally in a licensed legalization system. Yeah, absolutely. And I know a lot of people might think that, you know, if you freely distribute out drugs to the entire population that everyone's just going to get addicted but it's not the addictive behavior is it's not often the substance that's addictive it's it's that everything that's led up to the point that they've reverting to that to to escape their their mind and the fact that we're criminalizing this behavior doesn't make any sense at all because it, it's a mental health problem not a crime and I often get asked, like, yeah. well, where do you think they sit? Is it recreation or is it therapy? It's like, well, that's not really the point. The point is that, you know, these these drugs need to be educated. Yeah, not only that, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but just to say that recreational can be also therapeutic. You know, we've got these binaries. It's this or that. You know, if it's recreational, it's heedless, it's reckless, it can't be therapeutic. But dancing all night with a group of people can be profoundly healing for people. Um, so th these distinctions are arbitrary a lot of ways. I mean, when you are doing it in a therapeutic setting, you're focused inward, you're not on a group, you're, you know, you, you know, you can go further, I think, with therapy in a therapeutic setting than in a recreational setting. But people heal themselves all the time in these recreational settings. Recreate, recreational, they're recreating themselves. So I, I think it's uh, not so clear that it's this binary recreational or not. And we, we've talked to a bunch of people who've done MDMA at raves and worked through prior rape or prior sexual assault or other issues. Um, so we really need to, as a society, wise up. And, and our, my guess is, to, to sort of start doing long-term thinking, is that 2022, end of 2022, early 2023, hopefully we will get uh, FDA approval. Um, for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Shortly after that, hopefully we'll get approval maybe a year after that in Europe. Um, around that time, maybe the psilocybin people will get approval for psilocybin. And so 2023 or 2024, somewhere in there. And then we're going to have like a decade of these clinics being rolled out. There are already hundreds of ketamine clinics. And we'll have way more. We'll have 10,000 or so clinics in the United States probably. Um, and then in Canada and throughout the Europe. And then people's attitudes start changing. So 2035 is when we think we'll go to licensed legalization system. 
Perfect. I am going to stop it there. I know you're on a super busy schedule. I don't yeah, want to <laughs> hold you on for too much, but I rec- thank you so, so, so much for everything that yeah. you've done for the past multiple decades and you continue to <laughs> endeavor to do. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to chat to myself and Mind Medicine and Australia to really get a grasp and understand drugs and uh, what a drug reform might look like and, and the way forward for this. Yeah, well, I really appreciate the opportunity, and also we hope that Australia will be one of the first countries that will work on expanded access, compassionate use, and and hopefully adopt um, prescription use of MDMA. So we want to train more Australian therapists, and we're we're just very um, glad to be working with you all to try to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's coming along really, really quickly within Australia. Obviously, there's the rescheduling happening with the TGA at the moment, and you know, it, it seems a lot closer than, than what it was um, 12 or even 18 months ago. So, once again, yeah. thank you very much, Rick. Okay. I'll, I'll leave you Great. at that. Okay, terrific. Thank you. Well, there have it, friends. If you have enjoyed this episode and want to support our endeavors, the best thing that you can do is leave a review on Spotify and or Apple Podcasts. This will help expose this information to the people who are seeking it. If you're curious to learn more about psychedelic-assisted therapies or related information, or would like to know a little bit more about the services, events, and programs that Mind Medicine Australia offers, please head to mindmedicineaustralia.org and you'll find all the information you need right there. And finally, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease. Patients should consult with a doctor or other qualified healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. Alright, we did it. If you've come this far... Thank you very, very much. I hope you're enjoying these episodes. And if there's something that you're curious about or have a question relating to mind medicine, you're also more than welcome to send me an email, tommy at mindmedicineaustralia.org. Otherwise, I will see you here for the next one. So until then, keep well. Invest in yourself. <laughs>